So you say, there's the thumb of confirmation. Okay, here we go. February the 16th, lecture discussion number 92 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes. With some more Judges 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 thrown in. Hopefully this is the last of the Judges, but I may have just a little bit more to do as I read it just now. Because I write the sermon just before I get up here, all 7,000 words. Okay, most seven, at least 5,500 of the 7,000. To be funny, and I'm not trying to be funny, I actually do a great deal of writing when I'm sitting there during the music. Uh, That's why I want longer music. If I mentioned longer music, ten more songs, good. I could get I could get it more refined. Last week, lecture number nine, we by we, I mean me, left off with the assignment to find Christ in Judges 21. I don't know if all of you were here for that, but that was the assignment. A very difficult passage. I've got a wonderful letter from John in Pennsylvania, a tremendous theological mind. He talked to me about Judges 21. Maybe I'll be able to read that letter next week. It's really, uh, whenever I can bring some clarity to a passage that has concerned others, that's especially at that level, uh, that's a big deal to me, and I appreciate his words. So we have Judges in the 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21, and, and, and what 21 essentially is, is the resolution to the extinction of the tribe of, J- of Benjamin with all the machinations and the gymnastics that accompanied that resolution. It ultimately became a plot, a scheme, if you will, for lack of a better description. Israel, as a nation, began to weep for the tribe of Benjamin. And that has some irony attached to it, because what did they do to the time tribe of Benjamin? They slaughtered them. They wiped them out almost, essentially. They, but then they began to weep for the tribe of Benjamin, as Benjamin was without hope of survival. They, drove them, they got them to a point where there was no hope of survival. And that was due to the consequences of Benjamin's unwillingness to join the nation of Israel in removing the evil of the sons of Belial. And in fact, they not only refused to to remove the evil, to turn over the sons of Belial, they allied with the sons of Belial against the nation of Israel. That's what they did. And Israel then swore this oath at Mizpah, saying, none of us shall give his daughter to the Benjamins as a wife. Now, why did they swore that oath? Because they knew what they were going to do to Benjamin. What were they going to do? None of us will give his daughter to, a, to Benjamin as a wife. That meant they're going to kill all the women. Now they knew that going in. And they did that because Benjamin refused to deliver the sons of Belial. There's that word again. Deliver. You know that I am frustrated with people that think Judas could betray the infinite, omnipotent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. He could not betray. That's not the word. The word is mistranslated, in my opinion. Judas was not the deliverer. I'm sorry, not the betrayer, but, but the deliverer of Christ. And you see this. Benjamin refused to deliver the sons of Belial, the wicked ones, to be executed. You can start making those contributions, even though they're inversions, 
to repeat the central point, yea, a point already. Already. Yeah. I have to help you, I know. It's not easy to do this. <laughs> the central point of this literally true narrative it absolutely happened exactly as it is recorded. The, a great, exceedingly evil act was perpetrated. The harlot wife of the Levite master, let me repeat it, the harlot wife of the Levite master was plundered in a manner never seen since the Exodus. That's Judges 19.30. No one had ever seen it for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yet the tribe of Benjamin refused to deliver the ones that did this, the wicked ones. Again, Judas delivers Christ and Benjamin refuses to deliver the sons of Belial. Belial means Satan. So you, if you had trouble figuring out how that fit together, I just laid it out for you. I answered a question before you even asked the question. How's that for being a professional? That's right. I deserve some kind of bonus. What shall I ask for? It's certainly not food. <laughs> anyway, where was I? Yes. So I have this combination of the oath vow at Mizpah where they're not going to give any wives to Benjamin because they know what that meant to Benjamin. And that left only 600 male survivors ultimately in this war, survivors of Benjamin, all of the children, all of the women, all of the animals were were cut down, the cities were burned, the, all the men of war, the sons of Belial, also killed, massacred by the sword, the edge of the sword, Judges 20, 40 through 48. So the nation of Israel destroyed them with a ruthlessness. The massacre was to the precipice of annihilation, but it was not annihilation. So what's the obvious question there? Why didn't they kill them all? They were unable to kill them all. Kill all the children. People will read this and they'll go, wow, Israel is evil. God is evil. And that is simply not true. If you have that position, then you are already in the ditch and now I have to go pull you out. I used to have a really nice, big, tired, four-wheel drive truck that Eric wrecked. <laughs> By Eric, I mean, yes. Trying to go through the drive-through where at Burger King or Carl's Juniors or something? Where did you? Wendy's. Anyway, and that destroyed that truck. It never wanted. It was. It destroyed its emotional state, and we had to get rid of it. But I had a wonderful truck. I can pull you out of the ditch. That's the whole point. Maybe. That's right. That's two already. But the annihilation stopped short. Ask why couldn't they kill them all? They certainly tried. And 600 turned and fled towards the wilderness at the Rock of Rimac. Why did they go there? And how is it that they couldn't be caught? They couldn't be destroyed there. Do you think Israel just stopped killing them? In the heat of that, I'm going to offer that that required some kind of reflection. So to recap, I have this weeping that goes on for Benjamin. Why are they weeping for Benjamin? 
I've got the delivering aspect. I have the rock of rock. Let me just write them all down here. There's no annihilation. Ah, I can never spell when I'm writing. No annihilation. That, uh, what doctrine am I talking about there subtly? Huh? I have a column of smoke. It's, there's a signal. When you see the column of smoke, you know we are killing the children and the animals and women in the, in the capital city, if you wish, of Benjamin. And that caused Benjamin to panic. And they began to turn back. And when you do that in a sword fight, you've got big problems, right? The 30, they, start, they killed about 30 people, the Benjamins did, and they, on, the, on, the, on the third attempt. The first two, they slaughtered thousands, and they're killing 30. So why this number 30 is in that, in that uh, I'm, I'm interfering with that thing. I'll just turn here a bit. Where am I? Yes, there's, Judah is first. Why does God say Judah first? Let's see if that helps. There's this element of tomorrow. Oops. Too many M's. Uh, there's an oath at Mizpah. I have the slaughter of the Jebesh. Gilead. I have 400 women. I have 200 from Shiloh. There's four months in this. I have a feast day. So those are the elements in the story. All of those have significant questions about them. And then we have that that statement, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that... That's just a partial, obviously. There are many, many more elements here. There's so many elements I could go on for years on this particular subject. And some of those I raised previously. Others I've selected out and just put them on the board today for obvious reasons. At least I hope the reasoning is obvious at the end of this, but probably not. Hopefully everyone remembers how I ended Lecture 91. I said, find Christ. That's why the list. Find Christ. Find the portraits of Christ in Judges 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. He is on every page of the Old Testament, and he is all over this particular passage, these chapters. Now, I know none of you did your homework assignment. Some of you didn't even know it was a homework assignment. You're still guilty. You're just less guilty than the other people. There's a relativity here. But he's on every page, and certainly he's here. It's for us to search and for that which testifies of him, John 5.39. To that end, I have some letters to read. And yes, I actually get letters, real letters, in envelopes with stamps and return addresses. They give me their return addresses. Greatest mistake of their lives. I'm kidding about that. 
And this week, all of the letters refer to judges. And that may not be apparent when I read them, but trust me, they all refer to judges. Never trust anyone who says, trust me. Never raise your hand. Never get your doctrine from Hollywood. They are the dumbest people in every room they walk into. Those are the three nevers. Okay. I'm going to read the three letters. I'm going to start with Susie from Bakersfield. Dear Pastor Steve, Val Joe and I are still immersed in Jude and still loving every minute of our study time. Friday we are discussing the things we are learning from your lectures on Genesis, the Eighth Mystery, Joel, and Romans, and we came to the same conclusion at the same time. You have ruined us. <laughs> Which is my, the great joy I get from that, I can't even begin to explain. Do you remember when I first wrote you and told you about uh, teaching what I was learning about Adam, Eve, and Cain to the Bible study group at the church? I remember very well. I told her, stop. But, uh, she, she, that's when I got called to the principal's office. I apologize for the confusion, but there was doubt in some faces. Is she weird now or what? I'm no longer the head leader of Bible study. <laughs> Not because of that incident, but because I have a precious grandson and daughter who live with me and my time and energy are are limited, but I'm still a small group leader. Do you know what the Bible study books for women look like? What's the word I'm looking for? I think you used a word once to describe such stuff. Yes, you did. It was dribble blabber. Actually, probably psycho babble, but it's the same. The questions are... Think of a time when you felt blah, 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 blah. I'm a few months from 67 years old. Me too. I don't know if I should celebrate that, but the, I was worried about it for a while a few months ago. I'm a few months from 67 years old, had a minor stroke a few years back, and can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, let alone remember what I felt like. Nor do I want to remember when I was hurt, felt, upset, disappointed, blah, 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 blah. I can no longer endure psychobabble, and neither can Valjo, thanks to you. <laughs> You're welcome. I can no longer, let's see. Oh, I can no longer endure, and neither can Valjo the repeated commentary that has been passed along decade after decade that skipped the difficult verses does not yet Uh, does not consider the theme and thread of the blood that runs throughout the Bible. I can no longer endure, and neither can Valjo, the lack of interest in the Old Testament and the lack of wisdom in knowing what is in the Old Testament. I can no longer endure, and neither can Valjo, the lack of interest in prophecy, and when Christ said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, so many acts as if they mean they no longer need to know and understand the law and the prophets. I'm so sick of Susie, how does that make you feel? So in small group, I'm pounding in the omnipotence, the omniscience, omnipresence, and omnibenevolence of God. So when they share an answer to think of a time when you felt, I ask, now think about what you know about God's omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, and omnibenevolence. How would that change your answer? How would you change, how would that change how you felt or reacted? What are you saying about God in your answer? Or all you're talking about, I'll add a little commentary, or all you're talking about is you. 
We are setting aside the book and reading the scripture that relates to our study and looking for Christ in those passages. The ladies are beginning to ask questions about the passages. Last week we talked about circumcision and why it is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Boy, did the questions fly on that one. We are taking baby steps, except for circumcision. That was cartwheels and flips. But what a difference it has made in our small group. It is so much fun, and the women are loving it. So thank you for teaching me so that I am able to pass it on to others. As Peter ended 1 Peter, I end this letter to you and my Alaska church family. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all, peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Ha ha. I'd love to see that on YouTube. Susie. Okay. That's Susie. So we're going to put her, we're going to have an order. Susie goes first. Now, conveniently, I have a letter from Baljo. <laughs> uh, oh, no, I don't. Yes, I do. I've been listening to your last three, hi, Pastor Chronister. I've been listening to your last three uh, lectures on the Joel series on the bloody stump. And I should say this really fast. I, I did the bloody stump many, many years ago. How long ago, Dave, if you exist? Well, it had to be, yeah, at least that might have been. How long? Ten or eleven. Your wife says is always right. If you exist, somebody pretending to be Dave got it wrong. Yeah. Anyways, ten or eleven years ago. And I did a real shallow version of it. And, and I did that on purpose because I knew how this is. And so now that you guys, I don't care anymore, I guess what I'm saying. I, I'm just going to pound away. It's a, a, definitely a difference than I was at the previous uh, location, Vanguard. Anyway, um, I've been listening to your last three lectures on the, on the Joel series on the bloody stump. Something you said struck me when you were talking about the 12 pieces, limbs that were sent Pieces are, are limbs. They were definitely pieces and likely limbs. They were sent throughout all of Israel. You said that the wickedness that had been done to the concubine was evident on each piece. And then you added that something was missing. And I went to Luke 17 and got to thinking about the eating and drinking that was going on in the days of Noah and Lot. I have to think that this wasn't the eating and drinking of animals. How would that be great evil and wickedness? Anyway, back to the concubine, the harlot. Could it be that what was missing from the limbs was blood and possibly some of her flesh? Were the sons of Belial drinking her blood and eating her flesh? And I thought that was quite apropos. Now I have, oops, I have Wendy from Texas. Do you have any sir? No, this isn't it. Oh, no, I didn't bring the right one. Let me see if I can remember it. She asked a question on communion. And the question was, if you... Uh, hang on, I'll, I'll, I'll get really close. I have to skip way ahead here. It's in it's in First Corinthians 11, and and the issue is is that uh, if you take communion, or if you uh, 
Uh, I need to get it right. Here was her question. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment. She wanted that explained. So most people think uh, when they read that section of Corinthians that that had to do with having a party, gluttony. And that cannot be true because the rebuke is extraordinary. Okay, so those are the three letters. Susie, Baljo, and Wendy. And that's the order, right? One, two, three. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do the last one first. I'm going to do the first one second. And the second one last. Because why? Yeah, Matthew 24. You almost got that right. Verse 3. The key to Matthew 24, 1 through 2. The key to all of Matthew 24. And Revelation 1 through 3. And Revelation 7. Is that Christ answers the three questions out of order. The third question first. The first question second. And the second question third. I repeat this a lot because I get many, many questions on the 144,000 and all of these different issues. If you go back to Matthew 24 and you understand that it's the third question first, the first question second, and the second question third, then that will really open it up for you in my view. They ask, when will these things be? He answers that second. What will be the sign of your coming? He answers that third and the end of the age. And he answered that first. Therefore, when he goes first. Wendy is wisely in the process of trying to reconcile Leviticus 17. Oh, is it maybe I did bring the right letter. Let me make sure. I can't see. Oh, you say the life is in the blood. True. Good. I did good, except I forgot the second letter. You say the life is in the blood. True. You say you think you gave us enough to get it, but obviously I'm more stupid than everyone else and I didn't get it. Just finished the sermon, The Woman, the Beast. I've listened to the sermon five times. I read and listened to every Bible chapter where you mentioned the scriptures, and I still do not get why we can drink the blood of Jesus, but we cannot drink the blood of the Old Testament or eat blood. Yay, I did bring the right letter. I just got confused because of my agedness. I can no longer blame anything else. So Wendy goes first, and Wendy is wisely in the process of reconciling Leviticus 17, the sanctity of blood, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Leviticus 17:11. And you might remember that Cherry, who lives somewhere, we never can find her, is similarly engaged with Leviticus 17, 17:11, 17:14, 17:10. Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwells among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person and I will cut him off from among his people. Now, Benjamin almost got completely cut off, didn't they? And that is an Leviticus 17.10 is incredibly serious. And Leviticus 17.7 brings demonic elements into consideration of 17.10. Of that prohibition, it brings in the satyr or the goats representing demonic satanic beings. If you eat blood, you are attached to demonic satanic beings. 
And I'm going to, I'm going to cut you off. Can't allow it. Why can't he allow it? Where in the Bible did it happen is ultimately what I'm questioning. Hopefully some or all of you saw that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And immediately where did you go? That's right. You immediately went to Genesis 2, 7. Because there I have the flesh from the dust. And the life of the flesh is, is put in. And it's in the blood. And... And you also went to Ecclesiastes 12:7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of the life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And now let me put this down here where you, no one can see it. The life. It is singular. There isn't other lives. There is only the life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. The breath of the spirit of life that returns to him who gave it. Genesis 7.22, Ecclesiastes 12.7. Notice how I continue to, well, as Susan says, pound these scriptures, beat them in in every lecture. Obviously, I have a plan here. Repetition, is that's what they teach you. That's Math teacher, you just constantly repeat, 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 repeat until everybody catches up as best you can get them. Anyway, the life, the only life, is in the body at Genesis 2-7. Put in the body. And there is only one who has this life. He is the one who gives the life, the singular life, and he is also the singular life. He made the body and he gave, he breathed in his life. He gave it. He gave his life for us. That has a a dual meaning. I made that comment a a couple weeks ago. Now, as Wendy is doing, combine 17.7 of Leviticus, 17.10, now to Matthew 26, 26 through 27. That's communion. And keep in mind that Christ did say in John eleven twenty five, I am the life. It's unequivocal. There's only one, and I'm it. And now we're in Matthew twenty six, twenty seven. Jesus took the bread, blessed it, and gave it to the disciples and said, What? Take eat. This is my body. That's the body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them. Can I repeat that? He gave, he gave, he gave. He's the one that gives. He took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them. He gave them the bread. Now he's giving them the, the wine, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my life blood of the new covenant. Back you go, right, to Genesis 2-7. The obvious then is obvious. Leviticus 17 is connected to communion, isn't it? That's why Wendy asked the question. I have the prohibition in Leviticus 17, but then I have the opposite in Matthew 26. Somehow those reconcile, and that's what Wendy wants to do. Okay, now we go to Susie. Susie goes second because she's first. 
Hope that made sense. First letter is second. She's talking there about the thread of blood that runs throughout the Bible. The thread of blood. Obviously, it's the same subject, isn't it? Find Christ in Leviticus 17 and then find him revealing the meanings of that in Matthew 26, 26 through 29. Mark 14, 22 through 25. Luke 22, 19 through 20. And 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. Those are the communion passages, right? So he's going to explain the prohibition of, of Leviticus 17 with those communion passages. So we have this thread of blood now that we're going to talk about. So the, the lifeblood begins at Genesis. And that's where we have the definition of the living soul. Genesis 120, 121, 124, 128, 130, and 2-7. It's all the same word every time. The same two words, they're always the same. They're translated wrongly in your Bible. I hate to say that. Don't buy a new Bible. Just cross them out and fix them. It's nefesh kaya. It is living soul, living soul, living being, living soul. It's the same two words repeated. 120, 121, 124, 128, 130, and 2-7. 2-7 is Adam. So we have life, blood. But then what happens? That's right. Genesis 3, sin enters, and we have blood now being shed for the first time. Blood coverings, Genesis 3:21. We have blood crying out, Genesis 4:10. That's Abel. And where does the blood cry out from? From the dust of the ground, Genesis 2-7, right? Back to 2-7 you go. And now we understand why Adam, who is the one who is given the life at Genesis 2-7, why he renames the woman Eve. Because he understands, he calls her the mother of all the living. He's got a really good understanding of life, doesn't he? He knows what life really is. He knows what happens when you lose life. And he knows what happens when you get the promise of getting the life back. And that's why he names her the mother of all the living, as God defines living, as God defines life. Adam understood the meanings of the blood covering, not just for him, but for the woman. Again, it's the reversal of the reversal of Genesis 2-7. Hopefully that made sense to all of you. We had two seven, and then it, then we had the reversal of it at three. Genesis three, sin enters, and now we're going to have the reversal of the reversal. We're going to have all the life back as we were originally designed to have. So the reversal of the reversal of Genesis two seven with respect to the two slain lambs. Those lambs were killed in order. For, that's the first death in the Bible. The first shedding of blood. There's the thread of blood that Susie wants to know about. The lambs at 321. And, and so we would have the reversal of the reversal coming through the blood of the lambs at 321. And that ultimately comes through the seed of the woman. The life would add humanity. He who calls himself the life adds humanity. Now, how much life blood does he have? Let me ask it mathematically. How much lifeblood does infinity possess? Who else has that much lifeblood? First, does anyone else have lifeblood? No. How come the world says otherwise? Always says otherwise. The world thinks there's all kinds of lifeblood sources out there. There's one. 
It's singular. It's him alone. There is no other. So moving along quickly here. Let me see how am I doing. Terrible. Good thing I don't have a mirror to look at. That would just discourage me. I have mirrors at home. We're breaking every one of them now. We might put one somewhere and then lock that door. <coughs> I'm not moving along quickly. and I. No place is the thread of the blood more illustrated than the Ark of the Covenant. So studying the Ark of the Covenant is studying the thread of blood that goes all the way through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. No place is it more apparent, more obvious than the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, because the, the mercy seat is blood stained. So I've got blood on the mercy seat. And above the mercy seat is the Shekinah glory, the burning flame, the voice of God speaking through the fire. The Ark itself testifies of the deity of Christ because of the encapsulation of his humanity. And what that is is the gold over the wood. So the deity is completely covering the wood in case you you think his humanity has some kind of, of superiority to the deity. The Ark of the Covenant dispels that so easily. So I have the, the Ark's design is incredible. The cherubim look upon the blood. I have two cherubim. I have the angels looking upon the blood. And God himself on the, in the Shekinah glory is looking upon the blood. And the high priest comes in and sprinkles the blood. Both on the type of on earth, because the one one on earth, as I explained last a couple weeks ago, is not the original Ark of the Covenant. The original Hebrews 8, 5 is in heaven, as is the altar, as is the Holy of Holies. These are examples, if you want, want replicas in some way. So the cherubim look upon the blood. The God looks upon the blood. The high priest sprinkle, sprinkles the blood. On earth and in heaven, that explains the Lord's Prayer, right? And it also explains the don't touch me, touch me of John 20, Mary Magdalene Thomas. Because he is the high priest of all priests. He is the highest. He's the high priest of God. And he is going to deliver the blood. And many scholars have suggested that the ark is where the triunity of God is displayed. The Elohim, the us. Of Genesis 3.22. Elohim is plural. The us of Genesis 3.22. And the foremost scholar on this, in my opinion. The foremost scholar of the opinion that the ark is displaying the triunity of God. Is, in my opinion. How about that? Ada Ruth Habershaw. She wrote that the blood covering of the mercy seat was visually impenetrable. had impenetrability. So what she's saying is the blood of Christ was omnipotent. It's covering absolute. Thus we see in the mercy seat, we see the hovering, we see, but we see this omnipotence versus omnipotence, if you will. That's a terrible way to say it, but we have the collision of omnipotence and omnipotence. Or infinity against infinity, because omnipotence requires infinity. And that's an incredible mystery. And she saw it displayed at the ark. Because this mystery is, is the cup of Gethsemane. 
Not my will, but your will. That's omnipotence against omnipotence. That's infinity against infinity. It's the flaming light and the smoking furnace passing through the divided heifer, goat, and rams of Genesis 15. That's omnipotence against omnipotence, infinity against infinity. Not against. Terrible way of putting it, but I have no other way. It is the confrontation, if you will. The birds are not divided. I should, I should talk about that. It only takes a year. But that is the solution to sin being displayed. And I think she's correct. Mercy seat displays that, as does Genesis 15, as does Matthew 26, 36 through 39. The solution to sin revealed. Also, of course, Matthew 4, Luke 4, Mark 1, when you combine them all. Next, the thread of blood. I have, I'm offering Exodus 12, which is the ten plagues. It says, the blood shall be a sign. A sign of what? When I see the blood, Exodus 12:13, I will pass over you. Because the blood protects you. From what? Omnipotent power of judgment. So how powerful is the blood? The blood on the lintel has, and the two doorposts. And it drips to the threshold. So I have the lintel, the two doorposts, and the threshold where it drips down onto it. Protects the household from judgment and death. And all of those, all of that blood testifies of the lifeblood, the lifeblood of Jesus Christ. All that had the blood were saved by the blood. That's what saves you. The life blood. As was Rahab's household when she had the crimson, crimson cord. And obviously I could continue with the blood thread. That I have the crimson, crimson worm of Jonah. Psalm 22. There's blood everywhere in the Bible. It is a book of blood. They accuse the Christians and the Jews of being religions of blood. And they are absolutely right in their accusations. And we should wear it proudly. For today the life is, I'm going to stop there with the blood thread. But the life is in his blood. His blood alone has life. All other bloods is sin blood. It has to be replaced with life blood. Only his life blood is life blood. Yes, you pay more for that. He's, and that's the lesson of Genesis 3.21. By pay more for that, listen to the sentence again. None of you laughed. Only his blood has is life blood. I said it badly. Only his life blood is life blood. Duh. Does that help? Usually you laugh when I say duh. And that again is the lesson of Genesis 3.21 that Adam fully understood now, the second letter, last. Val Joe, then what did she add to this? Also added communion, didn't she? She and Wendy went right to communion, reading Judges 19. Into the discussion. Wondering if you plundered, if the, she's wondering if the plundered harlot, the wife of the Levite master, had been subjected to cannibalism. Remember, she survived. The ancient legends, the vampiric legends, for example, as we have discussed before, certainly imply that many people, many believed, the educated believed, 
that the lifespan of an evil man could be extended if not completed. In other words, extended indefinitely by eating the blood of the young. And currently there is no shortage in our country or China, for example, of research into harvesting cells and organs of the very young. As you know, children, infinite, infants. And the purpose is to rejuvenate the old. That's been going on for centuries and centuries and it's accelerating now. And perhaps you remember my acclaimed, I say that without, I can't say it without laughing. I'll try again. Perhaps you remember my acclaimed lecture, heterochronic parabiosis. Why do you laugh? <laughs> the experiment, that experimentation has gone back centuries, decades. And by acclaimed, I mean 268 people have downloaded uh, heterochronic parabiosis. And they are my favorites in all of the world. And heterochronic has no known relationship to Chronister, in case you were wondering. You were wondering how I remain looking so young. Heterochronic and Chronister. No, just, just a coincidence. Anyway, the very rich have long sought to escape death by aging. As soon as people get unaged, they realize I have so much money, I can't spend it. And I don't like my relatives. And so I've got to come up with a way to extend my life. And fortunes, past and presents, presently there are fortunes of the, of the uh, technical fields here. What do we call Silicon Valley now? Uh, I don't know what I would call it. A waste of most of us time. But uh, the... The computer industries, those people have made billions and billions and they are spending billions in order to solve, defeat, death and extend their lives. There is very little, if no, if none, if no, of no moral barrier to this kind of experimentation. Science is, has long been contaminated by politics, the endowments. You give a scientist enough money uh, you can corrupt him in ways you cannot imagine. And y'all is aware of the abortion industry. They dismember and sell without concerns for their eternity. The callousness used to be shocking. No longer. So what was the motive of the sons of Belial? And by extension, the tribe of Benjamin and Jabesh Gilead. As Jabesh Gilead refused also to aid the nation in destroying the sons of Belial, removing the evil. And for that they were slaughtered in order to save Benjamin. Because we have this weeping. That doesn't really make sense. I take an oath to kill every one of you, and then I weep over killing every one of you except for 600, which I, for some reason I can't get at. I think there's a relationship to the fact they couldn't kill the 600 in the weeping is what I'm trying to say. Obviously, we're going to have to cover that next week. 
So what's at stake here? What's the issue? Is it extension of physical life as it always seems to be? Is it the, uh, eternal physical life in a sinful state, in an unconfined state as it always seems to be the case? How will the almighty creator God respond to those who attempt to stay in an unconfined physical state of sin, of evil? Okay, how sophisticated were the sons of Belial? We have a tendency to underestimate them because we think they are what? An ancient civilization of dummies. And that's a mistake. Just look at the architecture of some of these empires. Uh, I'm in the building business. I look at that stuff and go, wow, how did they do that? How many men did it take to build those buildings? How long did it take? So you have castles in England that have been around for almost a thousand years. It's incredible. The technology and the capability, the mathematics that they had. So how sophisticated were the sons of Belial with respect to the knowledge of human anatomy, biological functionality? How sophisticated were they medically? They kept this wife harlot alive. While they did what they did, how long did they, this process take? For what purpose did they keep her alive? Well, it's obvious if she dies quickly, what happens? Purification, putrefaction, not pure, putrefaction. She decays. Oh, boom. Cells die. They knew that. I submit the sons of Belial had a high level of biological comprehension, human functions. Human systems. And they obviously would have got that from animal systems, wouldn't they? And that would mean that this is Joseph Mengele type experimentation. Now that may be a name you don't know, but Joseph Mengele ran the Nazi uh, experimentation on the Jews, especially the children. He died on a beach in South America. They never caught him. He was one of the most evil men that ever lived, and his last name means angel. In German. Joseph, salvation angel. So this is actually, though, really much higher. This is Sodom level and Genesis 6 level. This is Noah and Lot. This level of intelligence, knowledge, brutality, and this wickedness had not been seen in Israel since the Exodus, since Egypt, which tells you what about Egypt now. Start expanding this kind of capability. Just ask yourself this. Let's say that Chronister Biological Sciences comes out with an anti-aging drug tomorrow. How, how many people would call me? First would to call me would be all the old politicians trying to keep power. Then would be the tech billionaires trying to keep money. Then would come the athletes. I mean, you could see what would happen? And it would come from all over the world, and it wouldn't take more than a half hour. I would need FedEx, UPS, U.S. Postal Service. Wait a minute, that would that'd take forever. But I need every possible distribution thing I could imagine. That's right, dear. We could finally buy a bathtub. Yeah, it'd be great. Anyway. I think it, this kind of wickedness was all over the world at any given time. As, it just disappeared since uh, Christ came. 
in my view. Is Val Joe, how come, what happened to the sons of Belial? Did they get exterminated? As Val Joe referenced, it is my position that the harlot wife of the Levite master had evidence of dissection, specifically identifiable techniques that they recognized and they knew what tools they used and what they were after and how they did it. They, they knew about this process. And it was, the process was designed to keep the victim alive until they achieved their evil intention. And obviously she had enough capability to make it to the doorstep. So we don't know how far away she was. We'll get to that obviously next week. I note that this is occurring in our time. This is the time of Lot. As was the time of Noah and Lot, so shall the end be. Okay. The task is to find Christ, right? And I ever so briefly mentioned last night, this horrible story. Where do you find Christ in a horrible story like this? And last Sunday, I, I did I artfully, subtly, which is a redundancy. Just notice that. As I could muster, and I was careful not to give anything away because that's, that's the key here to Judges 17 through 20. And, and it's this phrase, Judges 17, 6, 18, 1, 19, 1, 21, 25. 21, 25 is a summation of this entire passage, this entire event. And what is it? It is, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And immediately, whenever there is mention of the king of Israel... We should recognize the obvious New Testament compliments to that. Most obvious is Matthew 27, 37, Mark 15, 26, Luke 23, 38, John 19, 19. What are those? Those are the four signs, the placards, if you will. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The King of the Jews. This is the King of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. All four Gospels recount this. They're all different. So what's that mean? All four Gospels record Christ identified as the King of Jews. And you've got to add all the signs together to get the totality of the sign. They each took a piece of it. They each have something. John 149, Nathaniel, when he sees Christ, he said, you are the King of Israel. There's no King in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Christ is the king of Israel. Hebrews 7.2 describes Melchizedek as the king of Jerusalem. The priest of the most high God. Made like the son of God. Well, that's interesting because the son of God is not made. He's unmade. So that means that Melchizedek is unmade. Well, that ends the discussion in my view. But some people will argue with me to the very bitter end. When I will prevail. It's one of the first questions I'll ask Christ. Are you Melchizedek? When he says yes, I'll go. (laughs) That's what I'll do. Maybe a little dance. I can dance like Michael Jackson now because. uh, That's right. Propofol. Oh. 
All things are made through the unmade God, the Son, Son of God, John 1, 3 through 4, the second person of the triune Godhead. Revelation 19, 16 says he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Christ is the king of all. And there was no king in Israel, and there is no king in Israel today, is there? But there was no king in Israel. The king is coming for Israel. He will be the king of the world. But there was no king in Israel, and that was is, now all that was in Israel at Judges 17 through 21, chapter 17 through 21, was madness. Everyone determined their own relative truths, their own morality, their own ethics. It's what we call today secular humanism or relativism. We, we have, we have a, an overwhelming defining of truth according to will. In other words, there is no truth anymore. It's whatever we say is true is true. The accepted standard has been discarded in my lifetime. And again, this is, um, this is good from evil, Genesis 3.21, being degraded. The ability to know good from evil is being lost in this country, in all the country. Behold, Adam has become to know good from evil. I kind of, uh, I, I emphasized a portion of that verse, Genesis 3.22, you may have noticed. But let me repeat it this way again. Behold, Adam has become to know good from evil. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's obviously a good thing to know good from evil. Most people think, ooh, that's a rebuke. But he knows good from evil. I, th I submit it conveys the meaning that Adam knew good from evil and was not deceived, First Timothy 2.14. Adam became like one of the Elohim, Genesis 3.22, Romans 5.14. Israel had no king. And if they had no king, and the king of Israel is Jesus Christ, then they had no Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? It's the transitive property. It's what we call Christlessness. I have a nation of Israel in Judges 17 through 21, chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. That is Christless. They had no king. They had no Christ. Good had been re redefined. Everyone had their own definition of good. Had their own definition of evil. And Isaiah 520 says, boy, if you're, if you're commingling good and evil, if you can't tell that which is good from that which is evil, then you are not Adam of 322. You are headed into insanity. Calling evil good and calling good evil. That's exactly what was happening in, in Judges, or in Israel in Judges 17, 18, 19, And when this occurs in a nation, when a nation has no Christ, Isaiah 520, then there again, madness, insanity is, it is the natural level. And when you read that, those passages, you see this kind of madness everywhere, even in the nation of Israel, who were trying to fight evil. The evil had gotten so bad that the people who liked evil thought that was evil. Mankind longs for a solution to physical death. Oh, I should say this about this country. Lori says it all the time. Those who approve of evil, uh, that you have those who do and those who approve of it, uh, both are condemned. 
Romans 1.24 through 32 talks about the insanity of the, that is coming, the madness that comes when you are Christless. What one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. Uh, that can't be said enough. We are witnessing that. Some of us are old enough to remember Gunsmoke or the Lone Ranger. Or the, the goodness was clearly defined. There was the good guy and there was the evil guy. And there was such a distinction. Now, there is no, it's just a mess in this country. There is relativism. Mankind longs for a solution to physical death, but the search for eternal youth always descends into grotesque evil, the plundering of the weak. At Judges 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21, Israel had become Christless, and that explains Judges 20, 18 through 28. That's the Judah first. The tribe of Judah was slaughtered first. Why? Why did God choose Judah? Why was it Judah's responsibility to go first? Did Judah know they were supposed to go first? I think they did. But they asked the question anyway, didn't they? They knew they were first. Did they want to be first? No. Why not? Sons of Belial, big problems. Who goes first? You. Not me. See how it goes. Oh, it went really bad. But God said Judah first. So Judah bore responsibility here. Why was Judah's responsibility greater? What in the history of Judah makes their responsibility better? They're the tribe of Judah. Obviously Christ is the lion of Judah. Why is he the lion of Judah and not the lion of Steve? Okay, any other, pick a tribe. There should be a Steve tribe. Maybe that'll happen. No, it won't. Hmm? It'd be full. Absolutely full of baseball and softball players. A couple of pool players, but I don't want them to be too good. Obviously, Christ is the Lion of Judah. We would have expected Judah then, therefore, to do what? As the as the point of the spear. To the son, they would overwhelm the sons of Belial, but they did not. That's why they asked the question, in my view. Judah fell. 22,000 men fell the first attempt on the first day. How many were soldiers of Judah? It's undeterminable. It is logical to assume a disproportionate number. In other words, more Judah soldiers are dead than the other. And there was intense weeping. Weeping. Why are they crying now? Well, they're crying because they're getting slaughtered. The second attempt, Judah is first again. 18,000 more of Israel cut down, again wailing and weeping. And now comes Judges 20, 26 through 28. Remember, the plan is to find Christ, right? And I'm helping you, I hope. Boring you some, but hopefully helping you. Then the children of Israel, that is, all the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept. This is after the second massacre of the, of the uh, Israeli army. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. The ark of the covenant of God was there in those days, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days, saying, Shall I yet go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up tomorrow. So 
So what did they do? They had fasting and prayer during the day. Genesis 1-3. The light from the darkness. Burnt offerings before the Lord they did. These burnt offerings are what? Are who? They're Jesus Christ. It's his substitutionary work of redemption. That's what they represent, the burnt offerings. They had Phineas. He's the grandson of Aaron, the high priest. And he stood in the midst. Look at number 1747. And his grandfather did the same thing. I have the first day, the second day. Both of those are Christless days. Judah gets, gets tore up. The army of Israel gets tore up. They're going to fight the sons of Belial and the tribe of Benjamin. And they do not have Christ. The third day, they have Christ. And after three days and three nights, the tomorrow, what does God do? He delivers them. I will deliver them into your hand. And that's the sign of Jonah, Matthew 12, 39 through 40. And Wendy included a question on communion. Again, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. For he who eats and drinks in an, in, in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment. That's in a communion context. I've got to say this about the Corinthians church. The Corinthian church. It was a mess. An absolute broken mess. Saved, but a mess. Read, the, read it. It's filled with paganism. I see churches today. We are the Corinthian church. Well, my gosh. Read. Saved, but a mess. I guess that would make sense. We are saved, but we are screwed up. 2 Corinthians 6.14. What accord has Christ with Belial? It actually tells you. He even mentions Belial. What communion... What accord does communion have with darkness? Communion is light. What is what communion has light with darkness? Those are rhetorical questions. The answer is none. None is the answer. Come out among them, he says, 2 Corinthians 6.17, and separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. 1 Corinthians 10.20-21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the demons, the sons of Belial. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. That's a communion verse. You cannot have a Christless communion. And you cannot mix or blend Christ. You cannot mix good with evil. You have to separate. 1 Corinthians 11.29 is not about overeating. It's about Christlessness. That is why the Leviticus blood is what? Is it Christ's blood? It's a picture of Christ's blood, some would say. But when, you, when he says don't eat it, what blood is he talking about? So it's about Christlessness. And Israel separated at Judges 20, 26 through 28. They ended their Christlessness and they were received and delivered. Finally, the cliffside favorite word. Christ is in these feast days of the Lord, Judges 21, 19. So what's the obvious question now? What feast day is it talking about? Christ is the rock of Ryman, a place of escape from certain death. They got to Christ, didn't they, the 600? They went to the rock at Ryman, and you couldn't kill them there. It's a rock of safety and refuge. 
No one can kill you if you are at the rock of Ryman. And he tells you that. Do not fear those who can merely kill the body, Matthew 28. Run to the rock. Ryman is Gibeonite territory. This is the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites are perhaps the wisest people of all ever recorded in the Old Testament. This is their territory. That's their rock. And those guys ran to that rock. How did they know that? Why was there 600? Maybe we'll do some more next week, but you probably have everything you need now to solve Judges 17, 18, 19, and 21. I hope. Maybe not, because I need, I need the big money. I need, that, I need to keep running this operation.